You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Philippe Aguillon. He's part of the Collège de France and is also at the London School of Economics. And I believe you're also doing some work at INSEAD at the moment, permanently at INSEAD. He's also the author of a bunch of books, Endogenous Growth Theory, of course, that you co-authored a couple years back, and The Economics of Growth, and most recently, this book right here called The Power of Creative Destruction, Economic Upheaval, and the Wealth of Nations. Now, I think this book, I found this book particularly interesting as an economic historian because not only are you trying to tackle sort of the sources of growth and of well-being, but also bring that story into the present and talk about some of the things that are happening right now in the global economy that may either foster or retard those developments. And so maybe I thought what we could start off with is talking about endogenous growth theory. So if we understand a bit about human history and you briefly encapsulate the entirety of human history in the beginning of the book, there is this huge discontinuity which happens around 1800, which economic historians have struggled to explain. Neoclassical economics doesn't always do a very good job of dealing with discontinuities, right? It's focused primarily on equilibrium and disequilibrium phenomenon is generally a challenge. And so the dominant view of growth was the solo growth model, which we still teach in our classes. And there's some limitations there. And these limitations gave rise to what we now call endogenous growth theory. And I think this was really a a profound transformation in how we thought about the sources of growth. And it emerged in, I guess, the 1980s or so. Could you maybe take us back in, in time and tell us a little bit about where did endogenous growth theory come from? And you know, why was it so important and how did it sort of supplement or replace the kind of solo growth theory? Yeah, so the solo growth model, it's a very elegant model. I think uh, it should be taught and it's taught in all undergraduate classes because it's a model of a model. It's very parsimonious, elegant. It has only two equations. Uh, One equation is how you produce final output using capital and labor. And the second one is how you accumulate capital. But what this model shows is that on the reasonable assumptions on the uh, aggregate production function, there is no way you can have sustained long-run growth without technical progress. It's a growth model to show that in the absence of technical progress, on the reasonable assumptions, I mean, decreasing returns to capital accumulation, you cannot have, you run out of steam if you just rely on capital accumulation in order to generate more growth. That's the main teaching, that's the main lesson from this model. So from there, you have the view that, well, if you want to explain long-run growth, you need to understand the sources of a technical, what solo calls technical progress. But there, solo doesn't tell you where uh, technical progress comes from, okay? Mm-hmm. And then you have to go back. But we know there has been, uh, you know, Schumpeter had this view that innovation was very important. He had understood also that innovation is associated with the notion of creative destruction. New technologies make old technologies obsolete, the new replaces the old. And so it was important to go back, but there was no, Schumpeter didn't have a model of economic growth. He didn't have empirical analysis of, of the, so you needed to build a model embodying this notion that innovation is key, embodying creative destruction. And that's what I did with Peter Howitt. You see, we built 
a model that you see that operationalize the notion of creative destruction. Okay, so the model rests on three main assumptions. Long-run growth relies on cumulative innovations. Innovations do not come from heaven. They result from entrepreneurial activities motivated by innovation rents, by the prospect of innovation rents. And the third property is creative destruction, is that new innovation displaces old technologies. We built a model around those three things. But you see, at the heart of the growth process that we described there, you have a contradiction because on the one hand, you need innovation rents to motivate entrepreneurial activities. But successful innovators are very tempted to use those rents to prevent subsequent innovation and entry because they don't want to be subject to creative destruction themselves. So what made growth really interesting is at the heart of the growth process, you have to manage this contradiction. And through the whole book, that's the contradiction that runs through it. It explains many enigmas in the history of economic growth. And a policy, the design regulating capitalism is primarily about how to deal with this contradiction. It's true that the first real model of that contradiction was the model I did with Peter Howitt, because previous models of endogenous growth didn't have the creative destruction in it. And I think by doing that, they missed the most important. You see, for example, if you have a growth policy where you only help incumbent firms, you will prevent entry of new innovators, and that will be very inefficient to generate growth. So it's very important that you take into account that growth makes winners and losers that growth involves vested interests that try to prevent the entry of new innovation. If you miss that element, you miss all what's important about growth economics, about the design of growth policy. So people have always been pursuing rents of one kind or another. And, and so it's, it's really about the changing balance between the pursuit of rents which are innovative and rents which are anti-innovative. And so what explains the discontinuity, right? Joel Mokir and others talk about science and the profusion of scientific knowledge and so forth. But scientific knowledge existed in China. There was scientific knowledge that was growing in the Middle East and so forth. So what were the specific circumstances that led to the correct or the growth for growth supporting type of competition in 18th century, 19th century Europe? So in fact, what's very interesting is that Joe Mokir, we describe Joe Mokir's thinking very much in detail in chapter two of the book because also it maps very well with the Schumpeterian paradigm that I defined. I told you three things, three aspects. Growth results from cumulative innovation. Innovation rely on the prospect of innovation runs that motivate innovators. And you have the creative destruction that has to be sustained. Okay. And Joe Mokir said, well, it's true. You had inventions in China, the wheel, the compass. Many inventions occurred in China or in other parts of the world long before the 19th century. But you see, the problem is that you were lacking institutions that would make creative destruction possible because each time you would have an inventor, the emperor of China would be so concerned that inventor may threaten his power that they would make sure that nothing important would happen afterwards. You see what I mean? And so it was very important to have in place institutions that make sustained growth possible. So there are three types where you needed three conditions to be met for the takeoff of the Industrial Revolution of 1820. First, you needed cumulative innovation. What made cumulative innovation possible was the fact that you had printing revolution, that you had postage revolution, and that you had the encyclopedia. The encyclopedia was very important. The Britannica encyclopedia or the French encyclopedia of Diderot, because you would codify knowledge. When you codify knowledge, that's easier 
to build on existing knowledge, to innovate further. So that was the first part. The other thing is that you needed institutions that protects property rights on innovation. We want to make sure that the rights are protected that you make on innovation. But for that, you needed the glorious revolution in England. And you needed the French Revolution. Prior to the French Revolution, the aristocrats would confiscate anything you might earn. You had no security of property rights. So you needed those revolutions to secure property rights and to make sure to have a patent system later thereafter. And three, why could you have creative destruction in Europe and not in China? Because if you have an inventor in France and suppose that the executive power in France wants to constrain this innovator, this inventor, she would move to a neighboring country, for example, England or Prussia, or, and would innovate there. And that would compete with France. So you could always escape to somewhere ne- next door. In China, there was no next door to, to escape. You see what I mean? So that made creative destruction sustainable in Europe much more than it could be in China. And you see, that's very interesting because it exactly maps the Schumpeterian paradigm that I had described before. Well, I think, I mean, the book is really about competition. And I think in a standard microeconomics view of competition, I think the standard view is is a little emaciated. It's a little bit shallow. I think what you do in the book is, is you talk about, well, first of all, we can think in terms of degrees of competition, right? And the impact of different degrees of competition, but also there's sort of a, a qualitative difference in terms of the types of, of competition. So On the one hand, you want to protect certain property rights, but on the other hand, you also want to kind of weaken certain types of property rights, right? In some cases, you want to strengthen competition. In other cases, you want to sort of constrain competition. So, I mean, do we need an entirely new way of thinking about competition that is removed from the standard spectrum, perfect competition through to to monopoly that we get in our traditional microeconomics classes? There was no proper analysis of the effects of competition on innovation. In fact, you have two kinds of effects. On the one hand, you have what I call the escape competition effect, particularly if I have a frontier firm. More competition, if you and I, we are neck and neck competitors at the frontier, more competition will make us innovate so that I can do better than you. That's a force whereby competition spurs innovation. On the other hand, there is a discouragement effect of competition. If I am behind you and there is more competition, I have less incentive to catch up with the frontier. You see, you have these two effects. And that's why the the relationship between competition and innovation in the aggregate is a kind of inverted U relationship. You see what I mean? So that's what you find. But globally, competition tends to be good, particularly for frontier innovation. Competition is less crucial if you are in the business of catching up. If you are in the business of really innovating at the frontier, Competition is really very important. Okay, so that's the first thing about competition. Another thing I want to say about competition is we want to explain why is it that you had a gross decline in the US and most Western countries in the recent period since 2005, in spite of the AI and IT revolution. And there it has again to do with competition. With the IT revolution, you had these big superstar firms, Amazon, Facebook, Google, became very important and became pervasive. They were very well organized, very good networks, high social capital. When they spread out throughout sectors, first it it boosted growth. So growth, productivity growth in the US was boosted between 1995-2005. But once these superstar firms invaded all the sectors of the economy, they stifled innovation by non-superstar firms. And the problem there is that competition policy in the US was not adapted to the digital revolution. We allowed those firms to make merger and acquisition as much as they wanted without taking into account 
the potentially negative effects that those mergers would have on subsequent entry and innovation. It's very important. You know, we used to practice competition policy very much looking at market share and market depletion, mm -hmm. not looking enough at the consequence that a merger and acquisition can have on subsequent entry and innovation. So that there, there is a whole thing with competition. It's true that you want rents. It's good that they have rents, but you don't want that people use these rents to prevent subsequent entry. Mm -hmm. You don't want to eliminate the rents. You want to make sure, by the way, that the rents are primarily rewarding innovation and not entry barriers. So one thing is important to make sure that you reward innovation, not other ways to get rents. But you also want to make sure that the rents will not be used to stifle future entry and innovation. Well, before we get into that, I, I want to focus on this idea of secular stagnation, which you referenced. To what extent is this an artifact of the way that we kind of measure productivity, Right. I mean, do we have a way of thinking about productivity that is adequate for the, the type of technology that we're looking at? I mean, weren't these kind of tools for measuring productivity devised decades ago? So the idea that you could have half a billion dollars worth of computing in, in your back pocket, right, as a homeless person, right? I mean, some people would say, hey, that change, that dramatic change in technological sophistication is not being captured in these productivity metrics. How should we be thinking about the measure of productivity? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. There is a measurement problem. First, I mean, there's been inventions and what they bring to well-being well is not properly measured by GDP. So for example, with internet, now you can book your own tickets if you want to travel or to go to the opera, before you needed to go to agencies, you save an enormous amount of time. That's not properly counted in GDP. You see what I mean? Or for example, you want to take a picture now. You just take your iPhone and you take a picture. Before, when you are much younger than I am, but when I was a child, you needed to buy pellicules, the film, mm -hmm. yeah. to, to bring them to a developer. It was costly. It was time-consuming. But that also is not properly counted in GDP. So that's one thing. There are things that technical progress generates new things, new utils that we don't always properly count as part of GDP or we properly take into account. The other thing is that productivity growth is mismeasured. Typically, you see, for example, typically when the price of an object goes up, it can be either because of pure inflation or because you made improvements to the object. If it's more or less the same object between yesterday and today and you made a marginal improvement, you can disentangle what is inflation and what is real improvement. Mm -hmm. But when you have creative destruction and you replace this object by this one, you have no clue what is inflation and what is creative destruction. And typically, you tend to overestimate inflation and to underestimate the real productivity growth because we don't know how to take into account creative destruction. So that we explain in chapter six of the book. So it's true that the mismeasurement, it means that, in fact, our productivity growth rate is at least 0.7% higher than what we think, which is good news in a sense, okay? But it has got a little worse over time, but that's not the main explanation for the secular stagnation. The mismeasurement explains why we tend to underestimate productivity growth and overestimate inflation, but that's not the main explanation of the observed secular stagnation. That has much more to do with this competition has become inadequate, not adapted to the digital era. You know what Biden has done recently? to rethink competition policy in the U.S. I think goes exactly in the right direction. That's exactly what you need to do to make sure that the, the superstar firms are not stifling innovation by new firms. You also mentioned that you think there's a bit of a lag, right? So that the kind of IT revolution 
it's taking a while to actually diffuse throughout a lot of companies. And I spent a lot of time on the show talking to business strategists, and we spent a lot of time talking about kind of what we call legacy firms and the extent to which legacy firms can reform themselves or whether you know they're destined to become obsolete. And I think you use this analogy of a schoolroom where a new student shows up, right? And which is a metaphor for an increase in competition. And th this could be opening up a country to imported goods, right? It could be the arrival of a new player on the scene. It could be the arrival of automation, right? But metaphorically, when this new student shows up, it's going to have a differential impact on the incumbent students, depending on their existing level of sophistication. So could you walk us through that, that example and how that illustrates what's happening? Yeah, that goes back to what I was saying before on frontier firms and non-frontier firms. Remember when I said competition, when we are frontier, people are competing at the frontier. It's a boosting effect of competition mm -hmm. on innovation. But when I am lagging behind, competition discourages me. And the parabola of the classroom is exactly that. Suppose you have a classroom, you have good pupils and bad pupils, and you bring a very good pupil, a new guy, a new mm -hmm. uh, young woman into the class, okay? And she's very good. So what will happen? The top of the class will work harder to remain the top of the class. Mm -hmm. But the bottom of the class that was already discouraged will be even more discouraged. That's the counteracting effects of competition on innovation. You see, it boosts the best, but it tends to discourage those at the bottom. So those at the bottom, well, what would they be doing then? Would they be taking their rents and trying to invest, say, rent-seeking or protectionism, or would they just simply distribute these rents to their shareholders and fade off into the sunset? Like, what is the response? How does the refusal to invest in this game, how does that play out? So that's very interesting. For example, small innovative firms, young innovative firms, they react to competition by innovating more. But well-established firms, all established firms, they tend to react to it by investing in lobbying, investing in politicians, in ways to minimize the impact of, of this new entry. You see what I mean? It's very interesting. So uh, small, young firms tend to innovate a lot, and the large firms tend to react to it by investing more in lobbying. There is very interesting work on that by my friend uh, Bombardini, Trebi, uh, mm -hmm. that shows exactly that. And it's very interesting, more generally, that young firms, mostly they invest in R&D and innovation. When they grow up and they become more and more established firms, they go in more and more into lobbying. And that's why it's important to continue to have entry. If you stop having entry and you just have uh, entrenched incumbents, that's very bad for long-run growth because those guys will innovate less and less and they will rely more and more on lobbying and... Uh, so this seems to create like a sorting equilibrium, right? Because in those countries, those states, those locations where you already have a lot of advanced human capital, you have a lot of competition, you have a lot of frontier knowledge, then competition just makes it even more sophisticated, more productive and so forth. And I think of California, right? California is a place where we don't have any non-competes. And so it's impossible to hold on to your people. And yet that doesn't seem to in any way strangle the ability to capture rents from innovation, whereas in places where you have, say, non-competes that are legal, the innovating is not happening. So it seems rather paradoxical because we would think that you'd need to have stronger protections for the rents on innovation. But in fact, in a lot of places like California, the, the rents are more difficult to achieve in some ways. No, no, because you achieve the rents, you get them. You have two ways to get rents. I can get rents because I do something much better than you do. Or I get rents because I put entry barriers and I do lobbying. 
I have what I call Steve Jobs versus Carlos Slim. Yeah. You see what I mean? You have various ways to do runs, okay? And I want to encourage the Steve Jobs of this world, not the Carlos Slims of this world. That's the thing. And so and the current work I'm doing is looking, having empirical methods to find out if some runs are more, stem more from innovation or they stem more from other things than innovation. That I think is very important. And that brings us to the protectionism, to the chapter 13 of the book. We know that you had China entering WTO. So you had an import shock, mm-hmm. okay? And, and the US uh, and, and we uh, developed countries in general went through the import. There were two ways to react. One way to react is to innovate more, okay? And that's the right way to react. That's what Germany did. Germany never did uh, engage in a trade war. They innovated more. And that's why Germany maintain control of value chains. They do very well. And there is the Trump way, which is to say, I do a trade war. The problem with the trade war, with tariff war, is that there is retaliation eventually. It may be good in the short term, but in the long term, there is retaliation there. And you will lose export markets. But if you lose export markets, that reduces your incentive to innovate because you innovate to serve world markets. Mm -hmm. If some of the markets are close to you, being closed down to you, that will reduce your incentive to innovate. So it's a very short-trend policy to respond to an import shock by a trade war. You should respond to it by aggressive innovation policy. But you also highlight that the optimal response is going to differ depending on the condition of the economy, right? So you make a distinction between, you talk about industrial policy and how maybe certain types of industrial policy might make sense in in some countries, but not in others. And you use the example of Korea, and you talk about how, well, all right, some form of promotion of certain types of industries through some kind of industrial policy might make sense. I mean, you emphasize that sort of the horizontal policies are better than vertical policies, but still you say that there are certain economies that can't withstand these competitive shocks. So one has to be very careful. When I was talking about the Trump tariff war, that was particularly bad because the U.S. is not a catching up country. The U.S. is a frontier economy. So there it made no sense. It might be true that China didn't really play the WTO mm-hmm. as it should have. And that was a point to raise, you see. And, and by then, we'll still, I'm still making the same point. So that might be right. But you see, there was no reason to engage in a trade war with France or with the rest of the world. And the U.S. had no reason to engage in trade wars with the rest of the world. You see, I mean, maybe China, there was a point with China, but France and Europe was not playing disloyal in the WTO with the US. Okay, So in that case of the US, it was not justified to really get into these tariff wars. Now, if you talk about Korea, that's a different thing. You will talk about a country which was catching up. So when you are catching up, competition is not crucial. You see, when you are catching up, essentially catching up growth, you need to have education. It was very good that you had education in Korea, very good education system, very good that you have some openness, you can absorb technologies from abroad, and that you have industrial policy to push firms in areas where you think you can acquire a comparative advantage. So that's what Korea did, you see what I mean? And they competed on the world market. So they had this mixture of education, openness to foreign technologies, and competing on the world market, and export promotion. And that worked pretty well. There was no need for competition inside Korea, for example. That was not crucial at the time where Korea was mainly relying on catching up with more advanced economies. That was the post-war period. But then what happens is that starting, so Korea, South Korea grew very fast up to the 1990s. And then Korea stopped growing as much. Why? Because the catching up growth ran out of steam. During the catching up period, that's why we explained in the chapter seven on the middle income trap, you had big firms, big conglomerates that developed 
called the chobols. And this, not only they prevented entry, but they also put pressure on the government to not move to more competition-enhancing institutions. You see, at the beginning, when you're catching up, it's no big deal if you don't have competition. But when you get closer to the world technology frontier, it becomes important to change your institutions towards more competitive institutions, to have competition policies which are more aggressive. You see what I mean? Because then you have much more firms competing neck and neck, as I was saying at the beginning. But you see, the problem is that those conglomerates, they don't want more competition, you see? So they were part of what maybe they played a big role in the catching up period. And they were an engine of growth during that period. But they became a break to growth. They became an impediment to growth. And subsequently, because not only they prevented entry of new innovators, but they also prevented the necessary move towards more competitive towards policies that are adapted to a growth which is frontier innovation growth, you see, which is very different from the catching up growth. And you contrast the case of Ghana with Korea, both of which had more or less the same level of economic development around 1960 or so. And of course, Ghana more or less stagnated. And they also had a policy which was directed centrally. Was the main problem there that they failed to focus. I mean, it was export-led. It's just that it was export-led around maybe an agricultural sector. What was the main difference there, and why did Ghana stagnate, whereas Korea took off? I mean, both of them were were sort of catch-ups. Did it have something to do with import substitution versus export-led growth? It has to do with that. And in fact, what Korea did, which was very smart, they played a lot on the education. They had a much higher level of education in Korea. I think a lot also because they had the trauma of the Japanese invasion mm-hmm. and they thought the education was a way to resist. It was very important to have human capital. We, one can take everything from you, but not your human capital. So they invested heavily. You have a fantastically good education system in Korea. And so thanks to this education, instead of concentrating on static uh, comparative advantage, which was production of rice, they decided that they would become leaders in electronics and later in microchips. You see what I mean? They aimed at becoming leaders in more advanced technologies. They said, we, because we have the education, we can absorb knowledge, which is frontier knowledge. We can catch up with that frontier knowledge and produce the most sophisticated products cheaper than elsewhere. And so they moved away from rice production into electronics, into much more sophisticated sectors and because they played a lot on the combination between education and openness to absorb technologies from more advanced companies. But when you say they, do you mean the national government? Well, the firms, but pushed by the national government. Mm-hmm. Right. They could have made the choice to, to remain world leaders in rice production. Mm-hmm. Well, you tell an interesting story also in 1998 when there was a substantial intervention in Korea that was driven by the financial crisis. And I think your argument is that this discontinuity essentially made it much more difficult for these balls to invest in kind of rent protection schemes, and this sort of unleashed the next wave of growth in Korea. And I think this is sort of a path-dependent story. I mean, if there wasn't this shock, then maybe Korea might have sort of become sclerotic, but there was this shock which kind of made this possible. I mean, when I look at the coronavirus crisis, I, I think of this as sort of an exogenous shock, which is also disrupting things. It's kind of forcing a lot of these firms that were not on on the frontier to make investments that they would not have otherwise made and perhaps divert some of their investment away from these 
you know, lobbying efforts and more towards developing IT infrastructure. Do you, do you see that as sort of a disruption of the path dependence for those kind of incumbent legacy below the frontier firms? Yeah, I think it's... Uh, so for example, in the case of Korea, you're absolutely right. What happened in Korea is that because they had a financial crisis, that combined with IMF intervention, in fact, imposed more, you know, Korea to let more competition happen. So mm-hmm. it became a more competitive economy and more entry of new innovators occur. And that's very interesting. I don't know if it's still the case, by the way. It might be the case that now in Korea, again, the troubles have, uh, you know, recovered mm-hmm. and again are able to store things. So it lasted for a while, but I don't know if it will last forever in Korea. Now, coming to COVID, what is very interesting with COVID is that COVID showed, for example, a country like France, we realized with COVID that we could not produce respirators, tests, and masks. We were very much dependent on foreign countries, which is not a problem. I mean, I'm not against globalization and value chain and global value chain. But there was the view that in France, in many in the most industrial sectors, France has lost leadership. And it lost leadership because it lost leadership in innovation. And how can France regain control or partial control of value chains in the various industrial sectors? It's not by bringing back firms from China to France. It's by having new firms, new innovators coming in. And you need to spur the entry of new firms. So, for example, these institutions like the DARPA, the Defense Advanced Project Agency for Space and Defense, or the BARDA, the Biologic Advanced Research Development Agency in the U.S. for Biologic, or the ARPA Energy in the energy sector, those play a very big role to move you from basic research into mass industrialization, but in fact through the entry and growth of new firms. You see, there's very much that's what you need. You need new actors to come in. You need to push new entry and to help them grow. And COVID made it clear, for example, to a country like France, that much more of that, we need to put in place an innovation ecosystem from basic research all the way to industrialization to regain control of value chain in various sectors where we lost this control. And it will happen a lot through creative destruction, through new firms coming in and replacing old activities. Not because you will bring back old firms that have plants in China back to France. That's not the way it will happen. It will happen very much through creative destruction. So one of the figures in your book surprised me, and this had to do with the kind of longevity of firms in both France and the U.S. And when I think of France, I think you've got the CAC 30, and it's the same companies that your parents' generation had. And so you think that there's just this long persistence of firms. But in the data you showed, you said that American firms are able to survive longer. And I was kind of surprised by that because we think that ease of entry in the U.S. and the number of new firms being created should necessarily result in a larger number of firms being destroyed. But you sort of highlight that American firms are able to kind of reinvent themselves a little bit more effectively. How do you reconcile this? Yeah. So in fact, in France, you have a lot, now you have a lot of startups, but they cannot grow properly. So suppose you have firms that come in. Some are better than others. You would like the good firms to be able to grow but the less efficient firms to disappear. But in fact, what happens is that in France, many good firms cannot grow either in France. You see what I mean? Whereas in the US, if you are good, you can grow more. So that's why if you map the size of the firm as a function of the age of the firm, it's steeper in US than it is in France because in in France, you can be good and that doesn't mean that you will be able to grow because you may not be able to find the right financing. And why? Because in the US, you have venture capital much more developed. You have institutional investors. You have these DARPAs and BARDAs. You have a whole ecosystem that allows you to grow if you are good. 
if you are less good, you are driven out. So it's both a selection effect because those who grow in the US are the very good ones who have the potential to grow. You see, so in France, the fact that you observe less growth in France reflects not only the fact that good firms are less able to grow, but it also reflects the poorer selection process. Mm -hmm. If you are not that good, you can remain for longer because you don't have a very good firm that can grow big enough to, to drive you out. It's the result of both things that make the size as a function of age curve steeper in the US mm -hmm. than it is in France. It's all about creative destruction, you see. Growth models without creative destruction could not account for this. They would not make the distinction between good firms, bad firms, new entrants, incumbents. They could never do that. Good rants and bad rants. And growth policy is all about that. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you miss that, you cannot give proper growth policy advice. Yeah, and I think that means that we need to kind of rethink how we measure competitiveness or, or competition. And you offer a couple of different competing metrics that we should be thinking about. And so one of the other things I found interesting in the book is you highlight that the proportion of income that accrues to capital and labor it has been more or less constant in, say, the U.S. economy. And one would think that the return to capital would be growing and growing relative to that of labor as we have more investment in technology. But one of the things that you point out is that in those frontier economies where you have the most productive companies, even the unskilled labor gets paid more than in places where you have a less sophisticated technology. Yeah, that's right. Because innovative firms, they in fact provide more what we call good jobs. And a good job because, you see, you have two kinds of skills. You have the hard skills that you learn at school, but you have what we call the soft skills, which are the ability to interact with other employees of the firm or how you get the synergies that you have with the other assets of the firm. And those are what we call soft skills, your reliability, your ability to interact and to understand how to play as a team player. All those things are not things you learn at school. They are things that they are what we call soft skills. Some of them you have them or you don't have them. Some of them you acquire in the firm through training, from specific training. And what's very interesting is that innovative firms, what we can we showed in recent work, and we talk about that in chapter five of the book, provide more of these good jobs, which are jobs that provide you more soft skills in your career and therefore allows you to be paid better and better. You have steeper wage profiles, even if you are an uneducated worker, when you work in an innovative firm compared to where you work in a non-innovative firm because the synergies are much more important in an innovative firm. You might be low educated. It would be terrible if you screw up in an innovative firm compared to a non-innovating firm. That's very interesting. That's one of the reasons why innovation boosts social mobility. Innovation is good for social mobility because innovative firms provide more of these good jobs, but also because of creative destruction. What creative destruction means? You have new people replacing old people, but that's, that carries social mobility. That's what's very interesting with innovation. Innovation is a vector of social mobility. So I think this goes contrary to what a lot of people think, right? So if creative destruction seems to generate the best returns for unskilled labor, I mean, that, that was the most surprising thing, was that skilled labor more or less does well regardless of where they're working, but unskilled labor does best with innovative firms and innovative economies and places where you have creative destruction. Then why is it that the social unrest seems to be greatest in those places where you see the most disruption. And I think you, you have a whole chapter on happiness, right? And in the beginning of the book, you say that GDP is the best measure of well-being. But in, in that chapter, you kind of say, well, hold on, there might be some other things that we're missing here. Yeah, 
In fact, I announced really already in chapter one, I announced already there will be chapter 11. <laughs> okay. I say, we will be in GDP, but you will see we'll talk about the environment in chapter nine, and we will talk about well-being in chapter 11. Uh-huh. And in fact, that's very interesting because we in chapter 11, we contrast the US model of capitalism with the Danish model of capitalism. Mm-hmm. The work of Anne Case and Angus Deaton showing the increased mortality of the middle-aged white non-Hispanic age 50-54, uneducated particularly. And they explain this sharp rise in mortality of that category of the population in the US since 2000 by the increased job insecurity, mm-hmm. which creates family insecurity and family instability. In Denmark, what is fascinating, and that's the work of my colleague Alexandra Roulet, which I took at length in Chapter 11, and she's a co-author in the work with me and Deaton on, on well-being, so what's remarkable in Denmark is that there is zero negative effect on health of losing your job. Why? Because in Denmark, they have installed a system of flex security that the firm can hire and lay off. But once a worker is laid off, he gets 90% of his salary or her salary for three years. He gets training by the state and the state helps the worker find a new job. And that system resulted in the fact not only makes creative destruction work better, and as a result, you have more creative destruction and more growth, more innovation-led growth in, in Denmark than you used to have prior to having this flex security system, but it also makes growth more protective because it's no problem. It's an easy ride. Creative destruction becomes an okay ride for any individual because they say, I'm fine. It's like if you learn to ski and you go on the black slope, three uh, diamonds slope or four diamonds, I don't know how it is in the U.S., in France, we say black slope. Black diamond, yeah. And if you go black diamond, like, without having a teacher, you see, you would be lost. You'd be uh, panicked. Or it's like having, when, when you go like Rondonet, you need to have the avalanche bag. You got to have the avalanche bag, right? Exactly. And if you go in Denmark, it's a nice ride because you are prepared, because you have all the safety mm-hmm. nets that you want. That's very different. And, and I think that's the key. I believe that the key challenge is that it's true the U.S. is a more innovative economy. A European economy is more protective and inclusive. But I, I believe in a, in a model of capitalism. We believe, and that's what we push in the book with my co-authors. We believe that we can have capitalism which is as innovative as the US, but as protective, as inclusive as the Danish economy. And some people believe that it's a choice that if you are more innovative, you have to sacrifice protection and inclusiveness. If you decide to be more protective, inclusive, you have to sacrifice innovation. I think this is rubbish. I think this is wrong. Because look, when the Danish, the Danes, introduced flex security, they made the economy both more innovative and more protective. If you improve your education system, you make your economy more inclusive. You allow more people to be part of the game, but you also make it innovative because more people can become innovators. That's what I explained in chapter 10 of the book. Otherwise, in an economy where you don't finance education properly, you have a, loss, a lot of what we call lost science signs. Whereas you have much less lost science in an economy where you finance education. So financing education will give you more innovation, but also more inclusiveness. And the third example is competition. I told you about the secular stagnation in the US. If now I boost competition, I do the Biden reforms on competition in the US, not only it should hopefully end the secular stagnation and allow for new entry, but it will also make growth more inclusive because entrance, inclusiveness is about entrance. And you know the social mobility I was telling you before of innovation. 
it comes from untrained innovation. It's mostly untrained innovation mm -hmm. that creates social mobility. You see, so I believe that you can really go into more innovation and more inclusiveness, you see, and that you have re key reform, education, competition, flex security are the three pillars of achieving this goal of a capitalism, which is both innovative and inclusive. So if we're concerned about preserving this type of productive competition, we have to make sure that not only do firms lose the ability to grind this thing to a halt through lobbying, but we also have to make sure that it's not the kind of laborers or employees who will lobby to have this thing ground down. And one way is to provide flex security. Another, you argue, is to provide a different type of education. What would be the main change that you would recommend for both, the, say, the French and the American educational system? Would it really be at the kind of K-12 level? Would it be about providing people with a different type of skill set that would give them more job security? Or would it be about discouraging firm-specific knowledge and encouraging kind of more general knowledge? In one minute, I cannot say that's how the U.S. should reform its education system. I would look extremely light, léger, as we say in French. I think the U.S. needs to have an education system which is much more inclusive. That means money should play much less of a role. It should be possible for any family to get good education to their children without having to pay for it. I think that's that's the main thing that has to be done in the U.S. Yeah, I was surprised when you... One of the most interesting facts in the book was the, the relationship between household income and the probability of obtaining a patent, which was dramatic, very, very dramatic. And what's, what's amazing is that I thought that in Finland, where education is free and high quality, you will not have this Drake curve. <laughs> you will not have a large increase of probability of inventing when you have parents that are high earners. But the reason is that you have that in Finland is because you have now a good education system in Finland, but it's too recent. You need to have that system for many generations in a row before this curve will flatten out. You see, before social origins will cease to matter into the probability of becoming an inventor. You need, you need good education for several generations in a row. It's too recent still in Finland. You see what I mean? You need to have a very durable investment in high quality education. So in the US, you have a good experience of charter schools. There are no excuse charter schools. There is a lot to learn from that. But it has to be, of course, generalized and, and extended. In France, also, we need some of that because the PISA test in France, which measure the performance of education system, has gone down a lot recently. So we need, particularly in areas where parents are low educated or, or migrant parents, they cannot really help the children. And you need to have schools where the homework is done at school, where it makes no difference whether your parent can help you or not. And France also has to invest to make those kind of investments. In Finland, they are pretty good at that, I must say. The Finnish model is a pretty good model of education. At the risk of you being light, with the two minutes we have left, you have some very insightful ideas related to reducing carbon emissions and kind of investing in green industry. And I think one of the points you're making is that when we look at these legacy car companies who have expertise in internal combustion, it's going to be very difficult for them to transition, and it's going to be very difficult to encourage them to, to transition. Should we just expect them to disappear and to be replaced by the Teslas of the world? Can we kind of nudge them in, in the right direction with, say, a carbon tax, or would it require some more kind of dirigiste type of interventions? And the other question is, I talk to a lot of people who are advocates of ESG investing, and they say, hey, stay away from these carbon-producing companies. And, and I always wonder, well, look, I mean, if you feel that strongly about it, why aren't you lobbying for a carbon tax? That would be a much more effective way to make this transition than to just sort of sell your shares to someone who doesn't care about this stuff. 
So first, I mean, that's chapter nine of the book. And so the first thing we explain in chapter nine is that there is something which we call past dependence. Firms that have innovated in dirty technologies in the past, they tend to keep innovating in dirty technologies in the future. So that means first that creative destruction will help you because new firms don't have that problem. So already creative destruction is a good way to already in itself to overcome that problem. But still, you have to deal with incumbent firms. They are there. You cannot destroy them. So what you can do is to redirect their technical progress towards technologies, which are green technologies. How you do that? Carbon tax is a way, but you have to do it smartly. You saw the yellow vest movements in France mm -hmm. was triggered by a carbon tax. So we have to do that very carefully. It's one instrument, but it has to be used very cautiously. You have another one, which is industrial policy. In France, if we didn't have nuclear plants and hydroelectric plants, we would pollute much more than we do. And subsidies to green innovation and industrial policy is another, is the second leg, I would say. You have carbon tax, you have what I call industrial, smart industrial policy. That's the, the ARPA energy, if you want. That's the second leg. And there is another leg we talk about in the book, in the chapter nine, is the consumers, particularly in countries where there is a demand for environment, a concern for environment, a competition induces firms to innovate greener. Because if I don't innovate greener, you will, and consumers will go to you. So it's the consumers through the competition. Of course, if I'm a monopoly, you have to buy from me. So even if I pollute, you have no choice. But if there is more competition and consumers value the environment, that combination is equivalent to a big increase in carbon tax. You see, so you have several One involves the state can use carbon tax industrial policy, but you have what I call also civil society. The consumers can also play a role, particularly when you have more competition. So this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you joining me. There's so much more to this book. I highly recommend everybody check it out. The data, the empirical analysis, the summary of the work of your colleagues, and the recapping of your earlier work. It's all in here. The power of creative destruction, economic upheaval, and the wealth of nations. Check it out. Thank you so much, Philippe. I hope to continue the conversation later. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.